So, as I said, I wanted to talk about this teaching on that the Buddha gave on these attachments and um, the statement that the Buddha gave that the clinging to a sense of self, to this constructed sense of self that we create in our minds, is our biggest source of suffering. Which is a bit of a problem, (laughs) since we uh, create and build and support and spend our life wrapped around ourselves and our self-identity and our self-image. And we live in a culture where, you know, there's a magazine called Self. You know, <laughs> there's, you know, you, that you're, you know, from a marketing point of view, you know, from a social networking point of view, it's hard to move in this world without engaging in forms of media that promulgate the specialness of you. (laughs) Which, of course, you are very special. (laughs) But not that special. (laughs) So I've been uh, working with um, you know, I work in different, in, in different fields, whether I'm working as an author, uh, trying to get work published, um, or working, doing consulting, and um, there's just so many ways that, that we all, uh, uh, I was going to say have to, but there's never a have to, but we're... Um, part of the process to have websites and have, you know, fan pages and um, we're often, you know, reviewed or, or ranked by the amount of followers we have and the amount of friends we have and all of that as if that means anything. But to, in a, from, from, from a certain perspective, it means something to a potential business contract or something. So um, I always find it, it's always been an interesting juxtaposition as a Dharma teacher to have to engage in that uh, self-creating, self-aggrandizing, self-promoting culture, which we were steeped in. You know, the 800 million Facebook users globally. There's more people than in, I don't know, the Americas, perhaps. So, so it's the, the, you know. There's, I think there's, these teachings are, provide an interesting counterpoint to that, to that whole um, culture of self, putting oneself out there as as different and unique and special. Even just, I was redoing my my CV recently, my, um, and it's. And just aware of the spin, you know, everything's a spin, right? Everything we can say it in many different ways, and 
uh, how much do we buy our own press release around that, you know? Well, that sounds good, reading, you know, reading our CV or whatever. But is any of that who we actually are? Do you get any closer to anybody's essential self by being friends on Facebook? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) But that's also part of light, how we're engaging these days. So, so having been steeped in, in Buddhist teaching and practice for 25 years or so, um, I'm always viewing it through a certain lens of how much is this building up a sense of self or a false sense of self that we then hold on to and cling to as if it's real, as if our Facebook identity or our Twitter identity or whatever kind of identity is real and has a certain reality. So um, some of the statements of the Buddha are like koans. Koans are, are questions that, that are, seem almost unanswerable to the logical mind that get us to really delve into the question. So I was on a poetry workshop this weekend, a writing workshop, which was very delightful. And there was a lot of analogies, as there is with, with any practice, there was a lot of analogies of writing practice and writing poetry and meditation practice, dharma practice. And one of the things that the teacher, Ellen Bass, said was, um, and this is probably a misquote, so don't tell her I I said this, um, that the point of good poetry is not to, a good writing is not to take away the question, but to take the question deeper. Not to, so, and the point of our practice, the point of a koan, isn't necessarily to get to the answer, but to keep the questioning going deeper. Which is a very profound way of looking at anything. So, um, so when the Buddha said, the attachment, the clinging, the holding on to this constructed mental image sense of self that we carry around, that we cherish so dearly, is the greatest cause of our suffering, that is a koan. Because to the mind it's like, well, what? What do you mean by that? What does that mean if this whole thing that I built my life around, the holding on to that, is suffering? What does that mean? What does that mean about my life? What does it mean about my Facebook account? <laughs> what does it mean about my, my tweets? <laughs> or any of that stuff. So I'm not going to answer the question. I mean, I'll speak to it a little bit. But my, my, my intention in this talk is to just keep you looking deeper. Well, what does that mean 
to be attached to a sense of self. What does that mean? I haven't figured out what my sense of self is, never mind figured out whether I'm attached to it or not. Trying to work out who I am. Mark Twain said, Mark Twain said we, we do not deal much with facts when we are contemplating ourselves. But a lot of ideas. We do not deal much in facts when we are contemplating ourselves. So this uh, teaching on, on the self is one of the most perplexing pieces of Buddhist teaching. A lot of Buddhist teaching is very practical, it's very pragmatic, it's common sense. But this teaching on the self doesn't feel so commonsensical. It feels paradoxical. Particularly with our coming, being steeped in the Western psychological tradition, which has been focused primarily in the last century in developing a healthy sense of self. So how does that relate to the Buddha saying, well, this attachment, this relentless clinging to the self is a cause of suffering? So there was a very um, neat uh, phrase that was coined by um, an East Coast psychologist whose name is eluding me, um, who said, you first have to develop a healthy sense of self before you can let go of the sense of self. Which is mostly true. That we need, we all need a healthy, integrated, stable sense of self to function, to move into relationship, into life, into parenting, and And at the same time, as we do deeper spiritual work and inquiry, and we look into the, that, the very nature of that self-structure. But the irony is that the deeper that we probe and look into that, the healthier that sense of self becomes. It's not that we get rid of it. There's no, there's no need to get rid of anything. What, we're, what, we're, what this teaching is pointing to is we're is we're seeing, just with, as with anything with mindfulness, we're learning how to see clearly what's true. To see clearly what kind of self-image or self-identity that we've created and that we put out to the world, that we hold on to, that we, that we feel terrible when that self-image gets dented in some way. So um, I was, uh, I'm working with this company called Prana, and um, they're make, we're doing a lot of filming about my work and <coughs> other things, and so I'm having to look at myself <laughs> on TV, <laughs> on my screen, on my computer, and it's, it, it definitely stirs up some feelings about myself. <laughs> 
listening to myself, here and seeing myself. Listening to myself is one thing, it's having to see myself is another thing. And it's so interesting, just like when we look in the mirror in the morning, is that, is that me? Is that, is that, it does, that doesn't seem to relate much to what I'm feeling in here. You ever had that experience? Or if you go away backpacking, which I love to do, and you don't, you get to have the good fortune of not looking into a mirror for a week, and you come back, and you're all, you know, tatty and grizzly, and, and it's like, that? Really? That's, that's who I think I am? Because we carry a certain, we carry around images of ourselves, not both pictorial, but also a felt sense. We all have a felt sense of ourselves. And then when we see a visual representation, it's like, oh, it doesn't really match. So what, which, which self is, which is more authentic, which is more true? Are they all true and none of them true? <laughs> and of course, that, what, what's challenging is that that is always changing. Right? Our identity is always changing. It changes day by day, changes role by role. Maybe you wake up in the morning and you're a husband or a wife. And then you get in the car and you go to work and you're a supervisor or you're a teacher or you're a student or you're a, who knows what, a gardener. And then at night you become a musician or an origami expert, who knows? what you are. You're a spiritual seeker, you come to Spirit Rock. You're a meditator. So this is from Stephen Batchelor. He writes, I cannot find the self by pointing my finger at any physical or mental trait and and saying, yes, that's me. For these traits come and go, whereas the sense of I remains constant. But neither can I put my finger on something other than these traits that however ephemeral and contingent they may be, nonetheless define me. The self may not be something, but neither is it nothing. It is simply ungraspable and unfindable. I am who I am, not because of an essential self hidden away in the core of my being, but because of an unprecedented and unrepeatable matrix of conditions that have formed me. So I'm reading that because it's very, the, the, the common misunderstanding of this teaching is, well, there's no self, or you've got to get rid of the self, which would mean getting rid of you, which would be very challenging, <laughs> unless you wanted to die. I don't recommend that as a practice <laughs> until it happens, and then it's the ultimate practice. <clears throat> so it's a paradox. And it's making our way into, it's making its way into uh, cultural discourse. You know, there's with, with, the, with the findings from neuroscience, there's a book that I'm looking at called The Ego Tunnel. Um, but there's many, many wonderful books now that are, that are you know, pointing to the research that's, that's discovering, that's understanding the nature of the brain, the nature of the self. And Time Magazine had a wonderful 
issue some years ago now. And the summary of the of all the of all the studies that they that they came to was they, they wrote, after more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have long since concluded that there is no conceivable place for a self to be located in the physical brain and it simply does not exist. <coughs> I'm sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> but so and that's that's been mm, revalidated in different forms of research that the, this this thing of what called agency you know the the little you know in the wizard of oz and you know, the man behind the screen doesn't exist it's a process we are a process we're an ongoing process even though it seems like i'm making the decisions right well, how many thoughts did you have the, have the choice over came into your mind in the meditation today? Right? Of the 500 thoughts that came, did you have any control over any of them? What about the feelings? Any of the feelings? Anybody say, oh, I want to feel depressed right now. Oh, whoop-a-doo. I want to feel ex- blissful. No, it, it comes and it goes. Or what about your body? You know, the sensations in your body. Did you have control whether your back started aching or you started getting itchy or tingly or... These things just come and go. So how much control do we really have over this, this thing? This is from the New Yorker. It's a cartoon. There's a couple watching TV. And there's the person on the TV saying, This week on The Amazing Race to Enlightenment, can Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness? And will Bob and Candy be eliminated for the relentless clinging to the self? It's going to come. We're going to have some Buddhist reality TV. <laughs> you vote them off if they're not that mindful, not so compassionate. Um, and if they're clinging to the self, right off. <laughs> of course, everybody would be voted off at that point. <coughs> Excuse me. So... So the easiest way to get a little um, access into this teaching is to is to really see the changing nature of, of our sense of self. That we there there is there is a seeming sense of continuity with this a felt sense of me. You wake up in the morning and you know mostly you feel like you. You don't feel like the lamppost. You don't feel like your mother. You feel like you. And you go through the day and there's a sort of sense of meanness, right? It's sort of, sort of physical, it's sort of located here. But when we pay attention to the, to the um, if we pay closer attention to that, it's actually always changing a lot. The sense of well-being, the sense of self, the sense of uh, the image that we're holding, so, you know, and, and, we, and we, take, we take birth, as it were, in these different identities, taking them to be super real, and, um, and we believe them to be true, and we get caught up in them. And I think that's partly what the Buddha is pointing to, is where we suffer is we, is we um, 
believe so wholeheartedly what's happening in the moment with our sense of self is the ultimate reality. So just reflect on how you were when you left work, the sense of self when you left work, to driving here, to when you arrived here, to then when you're meditating, to then when you're having a chat at the break, to now, does it feel like different senses of selves? Does it feel like the same? Does it feel different? I feel like a different person driving versus sitting here in the chair versus sitting writing my talk. They're just the there's a there's a thread. There's definitely a thread, but there's different senses of how I know myself. We can see that in a meditation. You know, we can sit down and suddenly, for whatever reason, we're super mellow and calm and focused and. We're thinking we're the best meditator in the world, and we should open up our own retreat center and you know, write some books on meditation. And, and then 20 minutes into the meditation, we've gotten so excited about that whole fantasy that, that meditation has completely gone out the window. We're feeling scattered and, and confused and agitated and restless and hating the meditation, wanting to leave, wanting to go get a cup of tea. And we went from being the world's best meditator to the dunce in the class who can't follow their breath. So if we believe either of those, see that that this is is the attachment. If we believe and get attached to those, that's where we suffer. We don't see that it's just another thing arising in awareness, like a thought or a feeling. It's it's, it's a cluster of things that creates this sense of I'm the best meditator, I'm the worst meditator. Right? And so you, can you see how buying either of those stories, that, that's, that's, the, that's the hook, that's, that's, that's the suffering right there. Of course, we like the best meditator in the world <laughs> story. That's why we get hooked. And then when we're in the bad meditator story, we spend a lot of time trying to get back to the good meditator story. You know, because that feels better, right? Why not? But if we see that they're just plays of the mind, then it doesn't really matter which one's happening. Now I feel great, now I feel terrible, now I feel like I'm, you know, world conqueror, now I feel like I'm just a snail. Okay, they're just coming things that come and go. We can have fun with it. This is uh, Wes Niska's suggestion. He's a teacher here and crazy wisdom guy. One suggestion is talking about personality. Personality is another way of talking about the sense of self, how we view ourselves. One suggestion is to regard your personality as a pet. It follows you around anyway, so give it a name and make friends with it. Keep it on a leash and when you need to, and let it run free when you feel it's appropriate. Train it as well as you can, and then accept its idiosyncrasies. But remember that your pet is not you. Your pet has its own life and just happens to be in intimate relationship with you, whoever you may be hiding there behind your personality. So I love that. Personality is like a pet, follows us around. It does follow <laughs> us around. So we have to be in relationship with it. So the question is like with anything, 
what's, the, what's that relationship like? Do we hate our personality? We spend a life reading self-help books trying to make it the best personality. Right? How many, well, how, you know, how big's the pile of the self-help books? They're not a bad thing to do. But it's endless. And it doesn't actually bring freedom. It brings a, it brings a nicely better trained pet, you know, which is a good thing. Because they can get really unruly and cause a lot of pain. So the Buddha said, which is your true self, the self of yesterday, that of today, or that of tomorrow, for whose preservation you clamor? I like to pay attention when I first wake up to see what my personality is up to. Because in sleep, one of the reasons we so long for sleep is, you know, we put a pet in the kennel and we just sort of, we check out for eight hours. It's blissful. It's blissful, right? We love sleep, right? We love sleep because we, we drop off the game of the ego for a while. We stop playing those games. And it's like, ah, oh, just let it all go. It's, it's a really quite amazing thing that being asleep and we just, Imagine if we had to live 24 hours a day awake. God, I'd get really old. <laughs> you know, we need to check out for a while. We need the brain to rest, simulate all the stimulation. But then we wake up in the morning, pay attention to that. The, the, there's a sort of, unless you wake up with a start, there's a transition time where that the personality hasn't quite kicked back into gear yet. So there's just a sort of like a Fuzzy, hazy, mellow, peaceful, actually. It's peaceful. Until, until the mind engages, right? Oh, shit, it's, I'm late for work. You know, uh, oh, it's Saturday. Okay, good, no. Um, and, the, you know, and then the, the, all, all of our stories kicks in, other oh, me and my life and my work and my career and, and then the whole edifice of, edifice of that structure has come in and it's like, <laughs> we feel tired before we've gotten out of bed. <laughs> so, yeah, so pay attention to how this, this sense of self ebbs and flows in your day. Because sometimes, like maybe, maybe you get up and you've been all stressed about what you've got to do and then you meditate. And you, maybe you get very concentrated in meditation and you're just with the breath and all that's, all that's happening in the world in that moment is breathing in and breathing out. And it's very delicious to be that one-pointed. And the sense of self and all your problems and your worries and your plans, they just disappear. There's just breath and awareness, and it's very delightful. What happened to the sense of self? Where did you and your career go in that moment? You know, it's irrelevant. It's just what's here. So I, as you know, many of you know, I spend a lot of time out in nature. It's my, it's my primary love and. Um, practice, place I practice, and um, partly because it's a great teacher. It is the great teacher. 
Um, and particularly around this teaching of selflessness, of understanding what it means to be in a world where the sense of self isn't, isn't dominant. Now you go out in the woods and the trees aren't clinging to themselves. Go, whoa, look at me, man, the biggest oak in the woods. <laughs> it's just not doing that. It's just being an oak tree. And beautiful, old, dead, alive, young, just being oak. It's oaking. And you know, if we spend enough time out there and we can sort of have the grace of to let go of our thoughts long enough, that rubs off and we start to feel less caught up in our own story and other people's story and images and, and we relax. It's why we go out to nature, why we go to the ocean or the forest or the mountains, because we feel that sense of, oh, it's peaceful to not be so lost in my drama. What a relief. So I noticed that the, the, the place I notice it the most is I, might, I go into the woods and to hopefully away from everybody. And I'm enjoying that sort of openness. And then at some point, you know, I'll hear voices or some bikers or hikers will come down the track near where I am. And suddenly there's a sense of, the sense of self returns very, with a jolt. Who are they? What do they want? Are they safe? Am I wearing the right gear? Do I look, you know, outdoorsy enough? Um... <laughs> You know, I'm spiritual enough, or whatever I'm trip we're on. You know, stop hugging the tree, okay, okay, you know. <laughs> um, and then you know, and then we suddenly feel small and constricted, right? That's a really good clue about about the sense of self. It's actually small and constricted. When we step outside of it, ah, oh, space, relaxation, connection. And then the people, you know, disappear over the next hill, and then there's a relaxation. Ah, and we go back to the tree, it's okay. <laughs> so this is uh, one of my favorite nature poems by Li Po. He says, he writes, a Chinese poet from the 8th century, the birds have vanished into the sky. So picture this scene, the birds have vanished into the sky. The last remaining clouds have faded away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. So that's, that says it. It says that beautiful transitory nature of the self. And then a more contemporary um, <coughs> translation of that poem, which I found online, and I can't tell whether it's a spoof or not, because to me it's a spoof because um, it completely miss, miss, just misses the plot. And it goes like this. All the birds have flown up and gone. A lonely cloud floats leisurely by. We never tire of looking at each other, only the mountain and me. Right? It feels pretty different, right? Instead of dissolving, it's like me and the mountain. And, and me. <laughs> and the mountain. <laughs> and me. <laughs> And we never tire of looking at each other. <laughs> so, never believe what you read on the internet, and be watchful of translation is the is the motto from that thing.
So, in, but we have these moments many times in our day um, where the, 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 that force of <coughs> clinging, of holding on, creating an identity is not happening. You know? And it's, it's often in the things that we love to do. So maybe if you're an artist or musician or a gardener, those things that you become absorbed in, right? we, we love those things because we become so absorbed we forget about ourselves. We, 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 we self-forget in a healthy way. So noticing how your personality is feeling right now, <laughs> listening to this talk. It's like, I'm out of here. Enough of that Buddhist nonsense. I can't wait to get home and tweet about that. <laughs> I, have a, I have a Twitter account. I, I tweeted once and that was enough. Not knocking Twitter. I, I, I think it's a great thing in certain contexts. So um, there's a there's a great uh, the the crazy wisdom uh, teacher Nasruddin uh, goes into a bank one day and he's going to go cash a check. And he's standing in line and gets the cashier and and uh, the teller says, oh, and you see some, ident- some ID. So he goes ruffling through his jacket and his pockets and can't find anything. And then he digs into his coat, pulls out a mirror. Yep, that's me. <laughs> so that's, that's what we do, you know. We, we confirm ourselves, we confirm our identity. If that's me, hell. You know, we get a little shocked when it goes starts to get gray, and you know we have to change our identity because there's more wrinkles. And so the Buddha spoke about five different areas where we where we cling the most to this. Uh, to the where where we attach the sense of self and cling to it the most where we apportion this this sense of identity to right so the first and most obvious place we apportion identity to is the body right we point we we point to ourselves you know you know if you point to, if you point to yourself you point right to, to your chest right it's me to my body this is me I'm here I know I'm here this is me. It's been with me for a while. Hopefully, it will be with me for a lot longer. Right. But is this is this body thing who you are? <coughs> it's a good question. Always good to examine. So, if you close your eyes right now, do a little exercise. You don't need to change your posture, it's very quick. <clears throat> when you close your eyes and you don't look to your mind or your memory, 
right? Does your body have a shape? Does it have a size? Does it have a color? If you look to the f direct experience, does it, have a, does it have an age? Does it have a gender? Okay. You open your eyes or not? And boom, then you come back. Oh yeah. Two arms, two legs, check, head. Oliver Sacks has this wonderful teaching on having no head. Which some of you I'm sure are familiar with written wonderful books about it. How do you know you have a head? Do you have a head? If you, your direct, what's your direct experience? Do you have a head? Can't see it? And you can feel it. Right? But from an experiential, phenomenological point of view, in terms of our awareness, we have no head. No eyes, no ears, nose. So when we go to the hairdressers and we have our hair cut, which I need to do, um, and we see all the discarded hair on the ground, right? do you say, oh, that's me. Oh, keep that. I'll take that home. I'll put it in the me box with my fingernails and um, whatever else falls off your body, <laughs> toenails. <laughs> warts, I don't know, scabs. Yeah, it's all me. I'll take that home. No, we go, we, we, no, we, we, as soon as it's off the body, we think it's disgusting. <laughs> Mostly. You know? I mean, have you ever lovingly looked at the hairs in your sink and gone, oh, that's me. <laughs> no, it's like, it's gross. <laughs> Get them out of there. So, and then when we hear about the reality of this body, and it just like with the thoughts and the feelings, the body is just this miraculous, unbelievably complex organism, 100 trillion cells, each performing, I forget how many things in every moment, a lot. I mean, it's, it's quintillions of things happening in every moment that I don't even know what they are, because how would I know? And it's all happening by itself. The breath is breathing by itself. The heart's pumping by itself. Our, our cuts and our, our wounds heal by themselves. Our liver grows every five weeks. A new liver. We create a new liver every five weeks. You think we'd start selling them or something? You know, like um, eyebrows come back every three to five months. And you're just amazing metamorphosis of the body. Always, always in dynamic change. But we don't do anything. We just show up. We just rent this body shop, this body clothes for a while, as Rumi says. Yeah. So is it really who we are if it has its life of its own? Or if you lose a limb, 
Is that who you are, as people do? Or what about the feelings, the emotions that come through? The Buddha said it's the second place we get, we, we most identify. It's with the feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. But we have so little control over them. The Buddha said, if you have no control over it, can you call it yourself? Surely if you had control, it would do what you tell it to do. If you wanted to feel happy, you'd feel happy. So notice what happens when you identify with certain emotions as who you are. I'm a happy person, I'm a sad person, I'm a good person, I'm a bad person. All the, all the, the, one of, the, one of the, the reasons that these teachings point to this exploration is that whatever we take ourselves to be is a limitation. Always. Whatever we take ourselves to be is a limitation. Whatever we def- however we define ourselves, it's limited. Unless we said everything. Whereas... A great English poet wrote, costing not less than everything. So if you think about the way you describe yourself, as as soon as you've said, I'm this, I'm my body, or I'm my feelings, or my thoughts, then we're not the rest of it. We put a box around, we limit this vast, complex, mysterious thing that we are. Does that make sense? So, you know, so, so much of Buddhist teachings and traditions talk about not knowing. You know, what's more true when someone says, who are you? And you might say, well, I'm Bill from, you know, Sausalito. Um, the more accurate answer is, I have no idea. <laughs> who are you? You know, because how could, you would need a lifetime to describe all of who you are. So better to hang out, you know, of course the mind likes to be definitive about things, and we need to be definitive in certain, you know, you know, when I get my passport, I need to tell them I'm Mark Coleman, because otherwise I'd get the wrong passport, you know. I send them the right, I send them the the picture that looks like this. There's a place for that. There's a place for these names and roles and identities. But to not believe that that's the whole story. That's, that's, the, that's the point. So another way the Buddha talked about, with the way we cling, we hold on to a mistaken sense of self is we, is we, we, we cherish our perceptions as being true. So I read that license plate today. Don't believe everything that you think. It's actually really deep. <laughs> if we did that, we'd be a very different universe. 
you know, so last couple of weeks ago I talked about, you know, the, this part, the part of this teaching attachment to views and opinions. You know, how much suffering would be eradicated if we held loosely our opinions? If we didn't go to war because of an attachment to a view about a certain religion or a certain race or a certain ethnicity. So, our perception is very relative, as we know. know, When the police get reports of a crime scene and get witness reports, there's as many reports as there are witnesses. So, one of the things that's interesting to look at with this relation, with a relationship to our identity, is to see uh, what changes it. Yeah. So, aging can change it. We have a near-death experience; it gets radically changed. We we get married; it changes it. We have a child; we lose a child. Many, many things. We, we get promoted, we get fired, as many people have been. So our, our identity is always shifting, and, and maybe you ref- reflect on, on how your identity shifted in relationship to the circumstances of your life. and go, oh, yeah, I'm a, quite a different person than I was in that career, in that relationship, in that situation. So, and one of the most obvious ways that that changes is as we, as we get older. Anybody here getting older? <laughs> Sometimes people say no, it's amazing. Uh, this, is, um, this is a great line. This is from Samuel Beckett. I say me, knowing all the while it's not me. I say me, knowing all the while it's not me. This is a poem called Forgetfulness, um, which apparently happens as you get older. I just don't remember whether it does. The name of the, this is from Billy Collins, the name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never even heard of. (laughs) I can so relate to this. As if one by one, the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain to a little fishing village where there are no phones. (laughs) Long ago you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away. A state flower perhaps, the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue not even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It has floated away. (laughs) This is so funny. (laughs) It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L, as far as you can recall. (laughs) Well on your way to oblivion, where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bike. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. 
So. What was the name of that poem? Uh, <laughs> 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 Forgetfulness. <laughs> You know, you could say that's one of the, the virtues of getting older is we, for, you know, we forget ourselves. Maybe. It's a possibility. Or we get more entrenched in our belief in who we are. Or we hold on more tenaciously to who we once were. Whatever that once were was. And then there's the area of our thoughts. Anybody believe that their thoughts aren't them? That your thoughts aren't you? (laughs) I saw a couple of hands, not many. It's the place, another place that we, we lodge our identity with our thinking, with our brightness of mind, with our intellectual capacity, even as it wanes, apparently. But it is really useful to reflect on the impersonal nature of the mind. Where do these thoughts come from? One of my teachers used to say, imagine your thoughts come from the person next to you. Because maybe they, maybe they jump ship, you know, maybe they kind of, you know, sitting on a bus and, you know, have these weird images come up and like, where did that come from? And you start looking at your neighbor like, who knows? Are they really so much ours? Are they really so personal? I'm frankly very relieved to not identify myself with my thoughts. Because <laughs> that would be really problematic. <laughs> One, because we have no control over them. Two, they're really wacky. Three, they're often missing the plot. And a whole other things I could say. You know, it's tremendously liberating. The point of this teaching in this practice of bringing mindfulness to this, our experience is we start to see all these different places where we hold on to things as who we are and we see the suffering or the shame that can come from that. You know, I talk to people who can feel very ashamed at what arises in their mind. And I say, well, who the hell knows why that arose in your mind, but there's nothing to feel ashamed about. The mind is shameless. It's really good to know that. So when we cease to identify as who we are, there's space. There's less, well, there's less association. There's not disassociation. There's just not so caught up in it. And then it becomes amusing, actually. It becomes play becomes delightful because we don't we're not 
taking responsibility for it. So a friend of mine um, has this phrase when he's, he's noticing when he's, he's doing walking meditation and he's um, on a retreat and walking really slowly as he likes to walk and um, really mindful. And there's, there's, there's a sort of a, you know, how we step outside of ourselves and go, this must look pretty cool the way I'm doing this. You know, people probably think I'm really spiritual the way I'm just like nailing this walking thing down. Like, you know, like... And the, and the thought bubbles up in his mind, looking good, looking good. And it just pops out of nowhere, looking good, looking good. You know, I mean, the mind is shameless. Like, who cares how you walk, you know? So you look like a zombie. Is that spiritual? I don't know, but... So, you know, when, when we can have space, then it's just amusing. You know, I find my mind funny. It comes up with. And actually the same friend, uh, who will remain nameless, um, he can tell a story and tell him, but I can't tell his, tell his name. Um, John Smith, no, just kidding. Um, uh, he has, we were on this retreat together in, in, on the East Coast. Uh, it was a long three-month retreat. And... Um, as always, uh, there's, um, there's, there's always one person, right, on the retreat that's something, right? That's, you know, <laughs> it's loud, noisy, whatever. And so, there's a, there's so um, there was one person who was really loud and noisy and wore lots of coats and just bundled around the place with gusto and everyone's like, <laughs> and... Um, so my friend's walking in the bowling alley, which is a room downstairs at Insight Meditation Society, and it's very quiet, and it's late at night, and this, this person walks by him, you know, trying loud and cumbersome, whatever, and the thought that rose from my friend was, well, at least I've got less self than him. <laughs> Which, if you think about it, is very oxymoronic. <laughs> I have got less self than you. <laughs> so there. <laughs> so, um, to summarize, I, I would love to take more time, but I don't want to make you late for whatever it is you have to go home to. Um, there's a line, there's a, like I've said before, um, uh, where the Buddha said, to, summari- and to summarize his teaching, he said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever that arises in the field of your experience is to be held onto as I or mine. Nothing. And that means nada. So, um, let's close with, a, with an exercise just to put this into your body, into your experience. So um, just uh, <coughs> sit, um, close your eyes, try not to fall asleep. And um, I'm gonna uh, say a sentence. This is a, this is a thing that my teacher used to do in India. So the sentence, and I want you to repeat it silently to yourself. 
the sentence is, I am a meditator sitting here. I am a meditator sitting here. So just say that to yourself quietly. I'm a meditator sitting here, at least in this moment. And I'm going to take off a word each time we say it. So now say to yourself, I am a meditator sitting. I'm a meditator sitting. I am a meditator. I am a meditator. I am. Just sitting with the I am. I. Sitting with that sense of I. Now take away the I. comments? What do you notice? Let me shout out a word or two. What's, what's here? Expanding. Expanding. Stillness. Stillness. Disappeared for a second. Disappeared for a second. Hmm? Space. Space. <coughs> what else? Spaced out. Spaced out. Mm-hmm. Relieved. Relieved. Mm-hmm. Making comments gives me a greater or a more awareness of self. Making comments gives a greater awareness of self. Mm-hmm. So I just do this exercise to give you know to give a little taste of what's possible when we take the eye away, as it were. We we cease identifying at least in a moment. Often what arises is space, openness, peace, clarity, calm, emptiness. So thank you for your attention and your practice. I, this will be, I, I'm not going to be teaching.